We have a phrase in our culture that we use. Uh, we talk about we save the best uh, for last. And I don't know how you can quantifiably measure what the best text or message has been in the book of James, because uh, it's hard to, to measure that. But I can say for certain uh, that the passage we're going to look at today is certainly one of the most confusing and often debated passages in uh, the book of James. So we're wrapping up our series today. We'll preach a Christmas-themed message next week, and then uh, just you're making plans to invite people for Christmas Eve. We'll have Christmas Eve service at each of our campus, and then we'll have one service here on the 25th that's identical to our Christmas Eve services, and then one all-campus service here on January the 1st. But we're wrapping up the book of James today, and I think we've saved the best for last. And this passage has also been, unfortunately, the source, I think, of a lot of discouragement. And I think it's misguided discouragement. So this is an incredibly relevant passage for everyone here this morning. And so let me just show you how relevant uh, this passage of Scripture is with a real quick survey that I think will prove our point. If you've ever prayed really hard for someone not to die and they died anyway, would you just raise your hand up Anybody had that experience? Yeah, almost all of us uh, in the room today and somewhere along the way, either directly from the teaching that you heard or maybe indirectly through conversations about faith and life, uh, some of that teaching uh, that you've been exposed to is the idea that somehow the degree of faith to which you pray in turn determines the healing uh, that God will move and allow. The potential for healing is in direct proportion to the amount of faith that you can exercise when healing is needed. Uh, several years ago, my uh, kids had a, a gymnastics teacher tragically paralyzed as a young man uh, while performing gymnastics. And shortly after that, uh, his family set up a Facebook page, and the title of that page was called More Faith, More Healing. Uh, the last I heard, uh, he had tragically, uh, sadly, not been healed and so the only thing to conclude in that theological framework where more faith equals more healing is that somewhere along the way, uh, there was a failure to exercise faith on someone's heart, and therefore, the arm of God was not moved in that situation and other situations like that. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels like a tremendous amount of guilt heaped on top of a tragic physical situation. So where do people pick up that teaching? How has that caused so much confusion and, and again, so much false guilt and uh, stunted faith? Uh, not all of it, but most of it is found in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you're using this morning, and turn there with you. This is not the only place where that type of theology is taught, where more faith equals more healing, but it certainly is the most prominent place in all of the New Testament. It's a passage that uh, many would-be healers and advocates of modern-day healing used to push the idea that somehow we're guaranteed physical healing uh, if we pray under the proper circumstances. So with that thought in mind, uh, let's look at this passage together in a message titled, Prayer, God's Prescription for Persecution. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a 
nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so there's lots of questions about this passage. There's been lots of debate over the years, lots of confusion uh, about this passage. But uh, there is no question, should be, what this passage is actually about. Uh, prayer is mentioned seven times in these verses. And so anytime that something's repeated in Scripture, it's for the sake of emphasis. So if you just read these verses and circled every time the word prayer is mentioned here, it's seven times in just a few short verses. And so clearly, that is the focus of this passage. The focus is not about healing. The focus is on prayer. But that does not negate the other questions that are fair to ask of this text. When he talks about suffering in verse 13, what kind of suffering is he referring to? When he talks about sickness in verse 14, what type of sickness is he referring to? Uh, and when he, what do the elders of the church have to offer up in their prayers that other people who are saved can't offer up as well? Do they have some kind of special access to God? What's with the anointing oil? What does that mean? What's symbolic about the oil? Is it literal about the oil? Does the prayer of faith always bring physical healing to that person? What does sin have to do with it? There in uh, verse 16 And uh, what kind of healing is he talking about there as well? And so, even though the primary focus of this passage is clearly on prayer, there are all kinds of questions that we have to work through this passage to understand what's going on here and form a theology as it relates to this issue of those who are suffering and affliction. But let's back up even further. And I want you to look at this passage against the context of the entire book of James because the key to understanding these verses is understanding the context with which in they are written. And so looking at the context of the entire epistle and specifically chapter 5, what we know is this, is that these people are suffering affliction not because of some type of physical ailment but because of persecution from other people. Let me break down chapter 5 for you. In verses 1 through 6, he's dealing with the persecution brought on from ungodly people, specifically rich oppressors oppressing the poor, is the context of verse 5. In verses 7 through 12, it's an exhortation or encouragement to persevere in the face of that suffering from these rich oppressors, verses 7 through 12. And then in verses 13 through 18, What it is, it's a prescription on how to be strengthened in the inner man when that suffering is prolonged, no matter where it comes from. But in this context, it was coming from rich oppressors, according to the context of chapter 5. So that's how the passage lays out. And against that context of what's going on in the book of James and the entire chapter 5 is how we have to interpret these verses faithfully. So... Now we understand the context, I'm just going to walk through this passage and I'm just going to ask the most obvious questions of the text and let the text speak for itself to form our theology around these truths laid out here this morning. So the first question I think we have to ask in this passage is simply this, who's the patient? Who's the person that he's describing who is sick or suffering or experiencing an affliction? If James is writing out a prescription on how to be strengthened Uh, When suffering through persecution, we need to determine who the patient here and what actually is ailing them. Are these people who are suffering physically? Are these people who are suffering spiritually or emotionally? Are outer man suffering? Is this inner man suffering? And so the great challenge in interpreting verses is is this. It's not to bring presuppositions to the text. And, And that's a fancy way of saying this. 
What a presupposition is, is, hey, on this particular subject, with you know, physical healing, miraculous healing, all those kind of things, this is what I already believe about that, and I'm going to take that belief, or that presupposition, and I'm going to lay it over the text, and I'm going to force the interpretation to come through that presupposition, which, by the way, bad way to interpret the Bible, all right? When you're interpreting Scripture, you need to let the text speak for itself. And if your presupposition doesn't line up with the text, newsflash, you're wrong, all right? We're all living under the authority of the text. And so when we lay aside those presuppositions and let the text speak for itself, I want to ask you a question instead of answering the question of who the patient is. Knowing the context of chapter 5, that he's addressing people who are suffering persecution or affliction from rich oppressors, according to verses 1 through 12, does it make sense that this is a passage addressing people who have physical or genetic diseases? No. That's not the context of what's going on here in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he's uh, discussing this idea of persecution. The whole book of James is talking about affliction, Beginning in chapter 1, right, we fall into various sorts of trials. Consider it all joy, my brothers. And then does it make sense at the very end of the book of James, after all this talk about affliction and suffering and persecution from the beginning all the way to the beginning of chapter 5, that right here at the end, he sneaks in some verses about miraculous physical healing from ailments. No, that doesn't make sense at all with the flow of what's happening here. And so who is the patient here in need of strengthening or healing in the sense that the text means healing. It's those who are physically, spiritually, or emotionally weakened by suffering. It's those who are walking through a season of prolonged suffering, specifically in this context, it was persecution from these rich oppressors. But in our context, it could be anyone who's walked through a prolonged season of suffering, and that prolonged season of suffering has caused weakness both in the outer man and in the inner man. Let me let you in a little secret. Did you know that when you're suffering in the inner man, it can show up in real outer man symptoms? You ever done that? You ever had a sleepless night because there's inner turmoil going on? And vice versa. When you're suffering in the outer man, if you've got some kind of physical ailment, you ever got really discouraged when that's prolonged a long time? You know why it works that way? Because man is not body and man is not soul. Man is body and soul. Interconnected. Scripture talks about. So these are people who are weakened, possibly in the outer man, but definitely in the inner man, through a prolonged season of suffering. Now, let me just uh, say this clearly in case you're wondering. I do not believe in faith healers. But I believe deeply in a God who heals people in all kinds of ways. The idea that you would preach an omnipotent, all-powerful God who cannot heal both the outer man and the inner man is an inconsistent thought theologically. And so God can do whatever he wants to. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is not limited by time or space or covenant. But do I believe that signs and miracles are the primary way that God communicates to his people today like it was during the apostolic age when the Jews sought after signs and wonders to convince them that in fact this message was from God? No. We now have the full revelation of the word of God. Do I think God still performs miracles? Of course. And so what I'm saying here is I don't think this passage contextually, despite all those beliefs about 
God's omnipotence and the ability to heal and perform miracles. This is not a passage contextually about healing disease where they were suffering from physical ailments and somehow a miraculous healing took place when they put oil on these people. That's not what's going on here contextually. This passage is addressing people who are suffering as a result of prolonged persecution. They're weak. They're weary. The inner man is weakened. There could be affliction in the outer man. They could have been beaten or all kinds of things. But if we were to say this is a passage about physical healing, then what we would say was this. As a prolonged uh, persecution went on without relief, some of them developed cancer. Some of them became lame. Some of them became blind. And none of that even makes sense contextually in this passage. Does it make sense that suffering went on and they were both weakened in the inner and outer man? Absolutely. These are people who are weak and are weary and are wounded from persecution that's gone on and on and on. And these, they're at the place where they're not sure if they can live out verses 7 and 12 anymore. Verses 7 and 12, and he's encouraging. He said, hey, I know this persecution has gone on. I know it's been hard. I know you're getting weary. And so in verses 7 and 12, he says, let me encourage you to be patient in your suffering, knowing that God is using that to grow you and mature you. And there's some people who say, hey, I can't do this anymore. I'm at a place where I can't even... I'm so weakened by this suffering that I cannot endure any longer. I'm at a place where I'm just throwing in the towel. You ever been there? Still some time left in the week if you haven't. Amen? And so he says, when you get to that place, when you can't patiently endure the suffering like verse 7 and 12 teaches, then this is what happens next. Verses 13 down through verse 16. Now, this is a place where the original language is actually helpful and not just something the pastor uses to try and impress other people, make sure everybody knows he went to seminary, right? So in the original language, in the Greek, the word that's often translated sick in our English Bibles is in the Greek, it's astheneo, A-S-T-H-E-N-E-O. And so as a result of that, that word often is translated in our Bibles and our English translation as sick. And so when we hear the word sick, we think of physical ailments, right? But in the original Greek, when I looked it up in both of my Greek concordances this week, the preferred literal meaning actually means to be without strength or to be weakened. So does it make sense that people who have gone on through incredible affliction, persecution, oppression, and it's gone on and it's gone on and it's gone on. At some point in time, they become without strength and are weakened in their ability to persevere patiently. Of course it does. Of course it does. These are people who are weak from their suffering, from the persecution of rich oppressors, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and they're at the point where they're saying, I'm throwing in the towel. I cannot patiently endure any more of this suffering, verses 7 and 12. And so now we've identified the patient. Let's see here in the text, what's the prescription? What happens when a person gets to that place weakened by suffering? And the suffering can be in all types of forms. This is the context of theirs, but all types of forms. So the second question I want to ask is this. What is the prescription? If a person is sick in the sense that they're weakened, what is the prescription for that? James here begins to describe almost an uh, Old Testament-like procedure that was followed in the Jerusalem church when a sick person would some, some of the elders uh, to their bedside. So the word elders, pastors, bishop, all interchangeable words in the Scripture. And so he lists three things. He says, 
that should take place. When you're at this place, you say, I, I can no longer endure this suffering. I'm just throwing in the towel. He says, okay, if that's where you're at, here's the prescription. So what's he say? Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? And again, the Greek, is anyone among you weakened? Is anyone of you without strength? Let him call, underline circle, him call. Let him call for the elders, pastors, bishop, interchangeable uh, leaders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so, so he lists three things out here. And so first off, what's he say? He says, make the call. Uh, and this is where uh, the text parts ways with the modern-day faith-healing crusade-type ministries. I don't want to name names, but uh, it's spelled Benny Hinn, fill-in-the-blank, whatever, right? And so, who in this text does the initiating? Is it the marketing team of the crusade ministry? Is the call to go and set up a huge coliseum or a tent and invite people through marketing to come to you because you can do X, Y, Z, fill in the blank? No, in the text, the one who's doing the calling is the person who's sick, not the one who has the gift of healing, which, by the way, the Lord has that gift. There's no setting up a crusade. There's no inviting people. There's no marketing department. The afflicted ones are the ones reaching out, not the marketing department. And so the word call here literally means to come alongside of you. So if you're afflicted and you can't, you're at the place where you're so weakened from your suffering that you feel like, I'm just throwing in the towel, I can't do this anymore. He says, and invite those spiritual leaders, pastors, elders, bishops, to come alongside of you. But you make the call. And then what happens? Once they arrive, what do you do? You, you ask them to pray. Now, now here's a question. Over the years, sometimes people have said to me, I really need you to pray. And I'm happy to pray for you. But i, I got to break the news to you. My prayers aren't any more impactful than yours. Did you know that? Uh, in Catholicism, there's a term called sacerdotalism. Can you spell that? No. <laughs> sacerdotalism is the idea that somehow the priest or the pope or somebody has special access to God so they can intercede on your behalf in a more effective way. That's called sacerdotalism. Can I tell you, after pastoring Baptist churches for 21 years, we believe in sacerdotalism more than we think we do. You know why? Because people say, I have to have the pastor pray for me. I'm happy to pray for you, but your prayers, you have full access to God. I'm not a priest. We have a high priest already. His name's Jesus. There is but one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. So why does he call on the pastors to pray if everybody has full access to God? Everyone can approach his throne of mercy with full confidence. Why can't we just pray ourselves? We have a high priest in Jesus Christ. Well, there's two reasons. One I want to deal with now and one we'll get to later. Now, remember the context. These are people who are probably new in their faith, new Jewish converts to Christianity, and early in your faith, guess what? You're probably not strong in your faith. And they're so weak. What, he's, what they're saying is here, I, I don't even have the ability to pray persistently anymore. I'm so weak. Have you ever been there? When suffering has gone on so long, you're thinking, I, I, I don't even know how to pray. I can't even pray. I'm so hurting on the inside. I can't even form my thoughts to pray. Now, here's the good news. The Bible says in those moments that the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf. Praise God. 
But what he's saying is, hey, if you're weak in your faith, call people who are required to be spiritually mature, pastors and elders, and have those people who are strong and resolved and mature in their faith come alongside and shepherd those who are weak from their suffering. And so that's why he says call on these people. If you're too weak to pray, then call on those who, by the requirements of the office of a pastor, are mature enough in their faith to not be weakened by suffering. Not that it doesn't happen, but they should come alongside folks who are experiencing weakness. And then, so we ask them to pray. And then here's the third thing. What happens? Anoint them with oil. Was this Crisco? I, I don't know, right? <laughs> what, what, like, I, probably olive oil, contextual, what's going on? I don't know that that really matters, by the way. Uh, several years ago, a pastor friend of mine who preached here a couple weeks ago, he, he told a story of, uh, he was telling me that at a church did communion, and they had me uh, crackers or grape juice, something like that, or so they just threw out some saltines and some Pepsi. And let me tell you, I think God was pleased. Amen? So I don't think the, what type of oil matters, but what was the purpose of the oil? Was it medicinal? Was it sacramental? Like, you know how priests... Anoint someone with oil before they die? What Was it symbolic? Now, if the purpose is physical healing or physical strengthening, the primary purpose, the oil sacramentally before death is the exact opposite, right? Like if I need healing or strengthen and you're coming to get me ready to die, don't come. So that doesn't make any sense, right? That it was sacramental, something like sacramental. If it's medicinal, it doesn't make sense that the pastors are the ones they should call to administer. Listen, if you break your arm, don't stop here on your way to the hospital. Amen? Hey, I'm in the middle of a medical emergency. Just thought I'd stop by and see what you think. Drive to the hospital. That doesn't make sense. Although, does it require a tremendous amount of skill to administer oil in someone? We learned from the Good Samaritan, the man used oils as salve for his wounds Wine is an antiseptic and bandaged him up. So there, there could be some medicinal aspect of the oil. If these people are weakened, even physically, if they've been beaten because of this type of persecution they're experiencing, we have to make some allowance that there could be a medicinal aspect. But I think the primary purpose, the strongest case, in light of the fact that the pastors and elders are the ones who are called to administer the oil, is the reality that the oil here is symbolic. Oil in Scripture is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. When we baptize with water, water is a symbol of the burial of Jesus Christ. When we take communion, the juice is a symbol of His blood. And all throughout Scripture, oil is used, uh, so is fire, as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so in that context, to anoint someone with oil was the symbol of setting them apart or consecrating them the word anoint means, refers to consecrate something, to set these apart through the anointing of oil, to consecrate and say these are people who need special care from the Lord. They're so weakened in their affliction that they're throwing in the towel, and so we're anointing with oil as a way to consecrate or set them apart as those needing special care from the Lord. And so, what's the prognosis if that happens? Well, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, when you do what verse, if you find yourself in a verse 13 state, and you do what verse 14 says you should do in that state, then here's what you can expect in verse 15. Verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith 
will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is where it gets all kinds of debates and discussion about this. So, so what's going to happen here? Well, here's what the text is. Uh, number one, that person will be restored or strengthened. When he says in verse 15 that the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. Now, in evangelical church, when we hear someone getting saved, we think of uh, spiritual salvation, right? He's not describing justification here. He's writing to people in the book of James who are already Christians. And so, in the original language, it has the meaning to deliver or rescue. And so, what's he saying? If you're so weak in the inner man, and you call these people to come and pray over you, anoint you with oil as one who needs special attention from the Lord, then what the Lord will do, the Lord promises strengthening to the inner man when you feel like you cannot persevere. God will use that spiritually to strengthen the weak one. That's what it means when it says the Lord will raise him up. The Lord will strengthen him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Strengthening the inner man. Now, do you see how this all fits together when you understand the context of chapter 5 and the whole context of the book of James? Do you see how this flows right out of verses 7 and 12 where he's saying, hey, be patient in suffering because God is at work growing you and molding you and sustaining you. This is where preaching through the book of the Bible becomes incredibly helpful as you see the flow and the context of what's going on. So here's a summation of all this taught in these verses. If you've entered a season of suffering, and it could be from a physical ailment. That's not what's here in the text. But if you're entered a season of prolonged suffering, and you're so weakened and discouraged in the inner man that you can no longer patiently endure that suffering, and you're at the place where you can't even pray, can't even form your thoughts in the effort to pray and ask God for help, call upon the pastors and elders of that church, have them come aside, have them pray over you, have them anoint you with oils, one set apart for special care from the Lord, and the promise is that those who are weak in their suffering, God will strengthen them or raise them up so that they can persevere on His strength when they have none themselves. One more quick item. This is something that gets misused contextually by those who are in the faith healing movement. Have you ever heard someone say this? Well, they didn't get healed because they didn't pray with enough faith. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Don't say that around me, by the way. <laughs> well, if they would have, apparently, they, you know, they could have been healed, but apparently they just didn't have enough faith. Talk about kicking someone when they're down. Someone's got some kind of terminal physical diagnosis, and then what you tell them is, huh, not only do you have a terminal physical illness, but you're a spiritual failure as well. This is so simple. If people would just let the text speak for itself. Look back at verses 14 and 15. Let's just blow that out of the water. And so if you're here and you've wrestled with guilt over the years because you had someone that, that you, you know, they, you prayed they would not die and they died and you thought, man, I just didn't have enough faith or I wish they could have had more faith. And, you know, the, the, like, let's, let's just lay that rest to bed. Because you know where all that false guilt belongs? In hell, where it comes from. So here's what the text says, verses 14 and 15. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them 
pray, who's doing the praying? The person who's healing? And somehow their level of faith they pray with determines the amount of healing they receive? They're not the ones praying anyway. Remember why the elders are there? This person is too weak to even pray. So the idea that somehow if they would have prayed with more faith, God would have healed them, that's not even what the text says, who's the one doing the praying. The whole reason the pastors are there is because that person has said, I'm too weak to pray anymore. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save or restore the one who is sick or who's weakening. So, so even in that hole, if they would have prayed with more faith, God would have healed that person who was sick. Listen, they're not the ones praying, number one, but even if they were the ones praying, whose faith-filled praying does the Lord respond to? It's not the person needing healing. It's the person who's come alongside to minister to those who are sick. And so this idea that Oh, if they would have prayed with more faith, they would have been healed. It's not even close to what the Bible is teaching here. And my goodness, don't ever come alongside someone who's received a terminal diagnosis at the sovereign decree of God and say, you just got to believe and have more faith. Because what you're telling them is somehow the level of faith which you can muster up will determine the arm of God moving in your situation when that's not what the text is saying at all. What you should say is this, I understand if you're so weak you can't even pray, let's call our pastors, our elders, have them come alongside and pray you, and the Lord himself will restore you in the inner man even if he chooses not to heal your outer man. That's what's happening in this passage. This is not a passage about healing people with physical ailments. God can do that. God's not limited. But even if it was, they still get it wrong because the healing is not connected to the faith of the one who needs healing. So what happens? Sorry, I just got a little stirred up about that. I don't know if you picked it up or not. What happens? What's the text say? One, he'll be strengthened in the inner man, restored and secondly, he'll be forgiven. Now, that, this is odd, right? But that's what the text says, verse 15. If he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Now, now, this proves for sure that he's not talking about physical disease because not all physical disease is as a result of sin. Jesus blew that out of the water in John chapter 9 when they asked him. They saw a person who was physically impaired, and what they asked him was this, who sinned, his mom or his dad? <laughs> Jesus said, Neither, right? So physical disease is a result of the fall as a whole, but it's not a direct punishment because someone's sin, God made them physically impaired. So what's it mean when he says they'll be forgiven? What he's saying is this, is that some people in their weakened state, spiritually, emotionally, they must have given in to the indulgence of sin and said, you know what, I just, after all this suffering, I just need a little pleasure in my life. And he says, here's the good news. If that's you, not only will God strengthen you, the inner man, God will uh, forgive your sins as well. Now let me just let you know a secret. After 21 years of pastoring, have I met my office lots of times with people who are confessing sin and what preceded that indulgence in sin was a season of suffering? You better believe it. I read a dissertation of a pastor who got involved in immorality and forfeited his ministry 
And in the dissertation, I'll never forget this statement. As long as I live, I hope I never forget it. Here's what he said. He said, I got so depleted and so weary emotionally that my emotions needed a jolt, so I gave them one. Apparently, that's what's happening here in the text. He says, hey, good news. Not only will God strengthen you, God forgives you. If in your weakened state, you just gave in to a momentary indulgence in sin. I'm going to preach over a little bit. Is that okay today? Totally rhetorical. Just keep going. So what happens? So what happens? Well, here's the next thing is this. You should continue treatment as needed. This is to the congregation. This is now moving from the person who's weak, and he's now addressing the congregation. And this is powerful. This is how the church is supposed to work. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, if you don't want to be weakened to the point that you give in to sin, right? That's what's going on here. That's why I said that in verse 15. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Now, if you're listening, say amen. When he says one to another, let me tell you what that means. Member to member. Let me tell you what that does not mean. Member to pastor or member to counselor only. You know how many times over the years I've met with people and they've kind of shared some sin struggle they're walking through. And one of the questions I almost always ask them is who have you shared this with and who's walking with you? And they're saying, oh, you're the only person I want to share this with. Let me let you in a little secret. That's not how the church works. That's how a therapy model works. We are the church. And the people around you are gifts to you. And some of them are weirdos. Amen? You're like, I don't see any weirdos. It's you, right? (laughs) So what's he say? Confess your sins one to another, which, by the way, practically, that probably best happens in a small group. But but if you start yelling out your sins in here, I'm going to call security. Amen? Why? Why should we confess our sins one to another? Who would do that? Well, according, that's how the church should work. I'm just, I'm just going to say this. It's not my notes. It's free, so you're welcome. The idea that you would go to church with people for years and years and decades and decades, and no one knows how you're struggling with sin and suffering, uh, and no one knows that, is a broken view of how the church should work. It's not even biblical. That only the pastor or the counselor should know what's going on. That's not what the text says. He says, confess your sins to one another. Remember, remember Why? And pray for another that you might be healed or strengthened. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So what's he saying? Uh, two things. Number one, be honest about your struggles while suffering. The old cliche is true. You're only as sick as your secrets. And my experience over the years is that lots of people in church have lots of secrets. And they're walking with them alone, and no one knows except maybe the pastor or maybe the counselor. But here's the problem with that. There's no way that a pastor or a counselor can walk with all the people. That's an in, uh, unrealistic span of care. But here's the good news. That's not how God's designed it to work. According to this passage, the people should be walking with me. And the reason they're walking with me is because I'm sharing with them how I'm struggling. Why? So they too can pray for me. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. 
And so one, be honest about your struggles while suffering. Listen, if you're here and you think, well, I don't ever struggle, let me just tell you something you need to hear. No one likes you, all right? Because we're all struggling. Various things. So you say, well, I don't, what if they think, well, listen, this is where biblical faith comes in. Believe the text, do what the text says by faith. You don't have to figure out how it's going to work. By faith, we obey these things. So number two, embrace the power of prayer from righteous people. What's he say there? Their prayers have great power. What's it mean? It's going to help you. You're suffering. I can't walk with everybody. Pastor, pastors can't walk with everybody. I don't care how many we have. Counselor can't walk with everybody between counseling sessions. But here's the good news. That's not God's plan anyway. God says, hey, confess your sins one to another. Because why? Because those people can walk with you. And those people's prayers will profit you in your suffering. Is how the church is supposed to work. So how do we apply all this truth? And We're almost done. First, realize God's primary way of strengthening you when you're weak is prayer. It's not preaching, it's not counseling, it's not worship, it's not fellowship. Those are all wonderful biblical things. But clearly from the passage, God's way of strengthening you is prayer. Secondly, you have to decide if you're going to be a real part of this incredible thing called the church and participate in a way where you actually believe that anonymity is the enemy of discipleship. Coming and listening to me preach, that's not the full expression of the church. That's a part of it. And it's the best part. Amen. Can we just say that, right? <laughs> My wife shook her head. No, no, it's not. It's not. And so here's a summary statement of the whole book of James we're walking through. Jesus didn't die to give us a faith that is dead. He wants us to have a vibrant faith that transforms us when we live by faith and impacts those around you. But you cannot put a faith to work that you do not possess by failing to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's like hitting a home run and missing first base. A young man and his new bride were out late at night returning from a party on some winding back roads. and Not being familiar with the road, the young man didn't realize that he was approaching a sharp curve at a high rate of speed. He lost control of the car. He struck a tree. His wife was thrown from the car, and he was knocked unconscious. After regaining consciousness, he quickly realized that his wife had been thrown from the car. Searching frantically, he found her in a nearby ditch, barely clinging to life. He saw the lights ahead of a small village, so he picked up his wife and carried her as fast as he could toward the lights. When he got into the town, the first building that he came to was a small building with a a house next to it, and on the building was a sign that said medical practice. He ran next door to the house and beat on the door until an elderly man opened the door, and he blurted out before the young man, or the, he could respond. The young man said, are you a doctor? And the old man said, yes. And before he could say another word, the young man told him, he said, here's an accident, and my wife's dying. Can you help her? And the elderly doctor said, I'm sorry, son. I'm no longer practicing medicine. I retired and closed down the office next door 20 years ago. Heartbroken, the man turned and raced in the night with his dying wife. And when he's almost out of sight, he screamed out. 
If you're no longer practicing, then take down the sign. Church, if this is not a place where weary and suffering and weak and broken people can come and be strengthened, then we might as well take down the sign out front. Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning, I want you to hear this clearly. Everything that we've taught today in the book of James about a faith at work starts off with faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you've never received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. Right now where you're seated, you can pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you do that? Would you confess your sins? Would you declare that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins was buried and rose the third day? And by faith today, would you repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? Would you do that today? None of this works apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. For those of you who are in Christ, And despite having a relationship with Christ, you're in a season of prolonged suffering. Could be inner man, could be outer man, doesn't matter. And you're at the place these brothers and sisters were in verse 13. You say, I don't, I don't, think, I can, I don't think I can go on. I'm going to encourage you this week. Share that with someone else who can pray for you with a full faith that their righteous prayer accomplishes much. If you want our pastors at any of our places, locations, to pray with you, we'd love to pray with you. If you say, hey, I'd love to, the pastors to get together and anoint me with oil as one who needs special care from the Lord, we'd be thrilled to do that. We've done that before, I'll do it again. But here's what I'm encouraging you today. Do not walk through your suffering alone because that's not how God has designed it to work. This is the church, a hospital for sinners like you and I. Lord, we're grateful that yes, life is hard and sin has cursed the whole world, but God, even in this brokenness, you've given us Jesus and each other, the church. And so, Lord, as hard as it is to let other people know we're struggling, Lord, I pray that we would confess that pride, we'd repent of that pride, that insecurity, and that by faith we would do what this passage tells us to do, and that's how the church works. God, may we be a place where no one walks alone, and may we have the faith and the courage to share that we need help. May we be the church. Jesus Christ purchased it with his own blood, and so it's in his name we pray. Amen.